0: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer@toferarchitecture.com. at Today's guest is Philip Plowright to talk about his book, Making Architecture Through Being Human, a handbook of design ideas. Philip is a professor and department chair at Lawrence Technological University and editor in chief of Enquiry the ARCC Journal for Architectural Research. Philip, thank you very much for being here with me today and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Brian. It's nice to be here.
0: Now, before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, I have uh, obviously a dedicated interest in the idea of architecture. I work as a practicing architect, um, but I, I come out of a couple of different um, academic areas, including uh, fine arts and the art histories, professional degrees in architecture. And then I have advanced PhD in uh, cognitive linguistics, which seems like a really, really strange combination of things. But, um, you know, I acquire these things quite um, thoughtfully as trying to get to a certain type of knowledge that I couldn't generally get access through through one discipline. So it was acquiring a set of intellectual tools for myself.
0: Very interesting, and so we'll dive into a little bit more. You know, the book very interesting concept of you know, and you, it's funny you mentioned your your linguistic background. So you know, first of all, there's 51 different concepts, and as much as we'd love to talk about it, I think we'll have to skip over some. But I thought we could start with you know, there's you have them grouped, and while they all are connected, and we can talk about that more. You kind of have these four groups of formal concepts, situated notions, socio-spatial ideas, and process actions. And so, while they are connected, maybe we can tackle them one at a time. So, I was wondering if when we started formal concepts, if you can kind of elaborate a little more on how that group is different than the others and as maybe how it's kind of the starting point for the book.
1: Yeah. And yeah, the organization's always quite difficult.
0: Um, they're really they're
1: the first three are actually scales of complexity. They're hierarchies um a lot of the a lot of the introduction of these concepts are actually come through um, cognitive sciences and, and from my work in cognitive linguistics and these are what are called embodied concepts and they're very very simple and so alignment axis balance orientation path goals these are building blocks they're conceptual building blocks of how humans occupy and understand space and they're they're really really simple they're skeletal and so we can apply them to lots and lots of different things but they're they're very, very simple. When we move into say situated notions, we actually have we actually have more complex things. And they things like hierarchy or implied action or identity, what they start to do is that they start to add things together. They they combine formal concepts, two or three or four of them together, to start to make more complex arrangements. As we move into social spatial ideas, that's architecture. And that's so the first two groups are actually shared across all design disciplines. Um, so I, can, I, run, I run programs on multiple disciplines. And so um, when we get to social spatial ideas, these are things that involve people, their in interactions with other people, and space. And so when we start talking about convexity or connectedness or commonality or privacy or presence, these are things that affect us at a social level. The first two are really working at what's called the sensory motor level. And then process actions are actually are actually methods. How we parts and tools that move into methods.
0: And that's a uh, great uh, elaboration on the four. And it's interesting because you mentioned you know the title of the book is "Making Architecture Through Being Human." And so starting with formal concepts, you know, when I first saw a lot of the different concepts, I instantly put the definition in my mind. But there's sort of a you know a, a new idea of. Looking at these definitions from the experience of being human, you know, just off the top of my head, you know, balance, I'm sure everyone, when you tell them balance, they know what they're thinking of, but you kind of explain it in terms of how human beings, it's the experience of gravity on your body. And so if that's very interesting. And I was wondering if maybe you could kind of go into that a little bit more, maybe not every single concept, but the idea that a lot of these are common, You know, you had mentioned these can be used in different design disciplines. But the idea of it's all human experiential kind of changes how they work a little
1: bit. It does. And, you know, the basis of all of this stuff has to do with embodied cognition and has to do with semantics. Um, How do we produce meaning? And while we often talk in the design disciplines, especially architecture, we're very, very focused on the idea of cultural meaning. Right. Uh, That's the large scale symbolic representations of things. That's not how most people actually understand space. In fact, that's how most of us don't understand space. Those are overlays. Space and our occupation in space is processed moment by moment based on these embodied concepts that are sensory motor. And so we connect things together through an axis. How does that work? Well, when we look at something, we look for an orientation because that's the way we're used to dealing with other people and the way our bodies work. We know we have fronts. Fronts mean points of engagement. When we look at something else, we turn it into a human. We look for its front, usually when there's more detail or a change in texture. If we give it a front, we then, we then produce an axis from that front because that's what we understand is sight. And an axis pointing at something else then creates a relationship. And they're really, really simple ideas. But they get, when we start putting them into real environments, they can become quite complex. But at the, at the basis of them, these are things that are easily understand and things that we can talk about and things that we can teach and things that we can design on that then we can then build into much more complex things.
0: Absolutely. And that provides us kind of a good segue into the next one. Before we do that, though, you know, we've mentioned the idea of embodied a couple of times. I just want to make sure our viewers are kind of on the same page. You had mentioned, you know, in the book that embodied kind of has these three factors of, you know, body position and orientation, our ability to move and the fact that our vision prioritizes aspects of the field. And, you know, I guess this kind of goes into you had mentioned this very early in the book our human and there's a lot in this that is very architectural but at first it was a little jarring that there's a lot of psychological to it the idea that our human thought is very efficient and frugal i don't think a lot of us realize that that we view millions of things every minute and we ignore 99 percent of it right and you met and you had mentioned that in terms of design it's this you know it, you have you make a good comparison that it's you know we, we're used to scanning the horizon for predators but even in architectural design or any design this efficient use of our mind to kind of drives a lot of what we do.
1: It does. Um, You know, and embodied actually means if we, I mean, we want to step back and think about that as a larger concept. It means that there is, um, there's an absolute um, correlation. There's a relationship between the way we think our senses, our bodies and our environment. Those things are not disconnected. And so our thinking processes have developed through our, Body's location in a particular environment, and that environment influences the development of our thinking, and the development of our thinking then influences how we design the environment. And it's a loop. Um, We've we've come out of a very long Western tradition of what's called dualism, where we we think our mind and our bodies are two separate things that we can think independently to our bodies, which is biologically untrue. It's a fallacy. And it, it creates an awful lot of problems. But when we start looking at things from an embodied point of view, and all the cognitive sciences support this embodied approach, um, that we can start to understand that there's a feedback loop between how we think, the environments we live in, the environments we live in, and how we think. And once we start looking at that, we can actually start to document a lot of it and use it. And for me, it was being able, and the basis of the book is actually to take a lot of content out of the cognitive sciences and things that we know very, very well. And to bring it into architectural design and ultimately into all the design, the formal practices, who don't pay attention to it at all.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And I, again, I'll, I've mentioned this a few times. I, I think whether it's for students, I said this before the interview, whether it was for a student or a fellow architect, I do think there's a lot in here that's very helpful in terms of a common language. You know, I think a lot of these concepts, while it's presented in a great way, I think, as you have mentioned, it's kind of there with a lot of people but I don't think everyone is as good as explaining it or even understanding it subconsciously. Yeah,
1: well, um, it's – so it's really I – mean, I always find the book is um, – I, I, when I describe it to people, I I call it a weird – I find it a really strange little book. Um, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not academic in a way that you would get a traditional <laughs> academic degree. It took a PhD to figure this stuff out, but, you know um, – to bring it it into an audience that I wanted to talk to, I really wanted to talk to first-year students. I'd written a book before this one on cognitive methodology, um, which I still get complaints that it's too complicated. so it's like, well, it is complicated because it deals with dynamic environments. And and so the intention on this one was to write something really, really simple. And it took about 10 years of research (laughs) to be able to write something really simple. And then, you know, Uh, And then a lot of it is common sense, which is also, I mean, it it doesn't, you know, none of this is probably good for my ego. It's definitely not good for my sort of my intellectual credentials because it's people read it and go, well, yeah, of course, that's the way it works. (laughs) But then, you know, the answer is, well, then why hasn't anybody ever told me that before? And we deal when you deal with the cognitive sciences, a lot of what we do is that we we actually start to talk about things that are really, really simple that nobody pays attention to. And it's just by paying attention to them that we bring attention to it and that we, we bring then contemplation on it. And for me, it was the ability to, to make a book, which was really a tool, right? Um, Absolutely. You know, and that, that really was the intention. But again, like it took, it took um, I had somebody just read this who was an industrial designer. And she said to me, how, and she just looked at me, she goes, how long did it take you to write that so clearly? Yeah. And it was like, well, it probably each one probably took a week or two weeks to write 300 words.
0: (laughs) You know, I've made my opinion on this clear before, you know, your intelligence. This is not just useful. If you are intelligent, it's more impressive if you can explain it to everyone versus a very small kind of quote unquote elite readership. So I think it's very successful there.
1: Well, uh, you know where the the genesis of this whole thing came from was, was really weird um i was coaching soccer all right and i was dealing i was dealing with pretty you know the stuff i'm dealing with I, when i because I, I, I work in cognitive methodology and semantics which is whenever i say that people's eyes roll up and then i have to <laughs> say well i i work in how we do things and what things mean and they go oh yeah that, well that's i that's nothing so i'm coaching soccer i have a really fantastic coach with me we're watching we're, we're doing u11s kids a great team out the the they're whipping around. We take them through these drills, right? And we teach. We teach them how to handle the ball. We teach them how to turn. We teach them how to defend, how to guard. We, we run through all these drills. And then we throw them on the field and they, just, and they play a game. The game's not predictable.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm
1: standing there and watching our team play. My coach, who's, t- who's working with me, she goes, I love this game. It's so dynamic. And I went, What? And a light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, I deal with dynamic environments all the time, right? That's right. design. I, I work in a dynamic environment. Everybody tells me you can't do methods and design because the, every, all the variables are moving all the time. Mm. And I'm watching a game unfold, which is really rigorously trained. Every player on that field is trained the same way in a series of small tactics that then when they go onto the field... The dynamic situation, they have to make really fast decisions about exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. But it's ingrained in them because we drill them over and over again. And I'm like, why doesn't architecture have a set of really basic tactics that we drill into our students, and then we put them in dynamic situations and they use what they know because they've been trained properly to understand how the environment works with people?
0: That's a very interesting – actually, I'll quote you from your book. It's a very interesting metaphor. We can use that example maybe later on. (laughs) Ah well, and so and so that's great, and I think that I think that gives a really good background of where the book is, how it started, what it's. I know you've kind of already hinted at what you've been using it for, and so we've kind of harped on the formal concepts a little bit. And I do understand that these groupings are not linear. I guess it's kind of a failing as a human that it's just an easier way for us to kind of move through this
1: (laughs) so many people complain about that (laughs) like you "You need to tell me which one i need to read first i'm like i don't know you can start anywhere
0: absolutely and you actually say that yes but you did kind of hint at the idea that concepts are you know all these they're, they're literally these concept ideas but then as you scale it up and then as we go on to the next quote unquote next one kind of the situated notions you do discuss the idea that you can start connecting them to kind of, and as you said, create a more complex network of using these different things. And I was hoping you could elaborate on it. Cause I'm sure what I just said may not have been as eloquent as it could be.
1: No. Uh, I mean, so that's right. You know, when we start, so we can take an example of, um, of say path goal, right? Which is, yes. that's a, that's a, that's a sensory motor information. That's really, really basic. It's called an image schema. And so we have we have a really basic um, understanding that we have two things, which is actually it's, it's three. So it's it's um, it's source path goal. And so we have a place where we understand we start we start from. We have a li- we have a line that we we take to then get to something else, and we use that. We use that image schema for lots and lots and lots of things. And we use it for things that are concrete, like moving through space. We'll look for some place we want to get to, and then we'll figure out how to get there and we'll move to it. That's a path-goal relationship. But we also use it in language. So when we talk about love and we talk about careers, we talk about them as paths and goals. So this is, this is the embodiedness. This is how it starts to persist all of our cognitive thinking. And they're all related together because they all come from the same sources. But for us in architecture, we can take path-goal, and we can actually start to, we can actually add some other things into it. And we make it more complex and, and it, becomes, it becomes something like journey. And journey is connecting a series of path goals together to create a more, um, a more thoughtful and more experiential, right? And so we, talk about a, we can talk about circulation in the building as a type of journey where we start to really think about what that experience is like. How do we move? Where do we go? What do we see? And then we can get even more complex as we start adding in things like memory, right? Or anticipation. And so when we start to think about some place where we might go, we show glimpses of things, we start getting, we start getting to, again, this is another layer of complexity that all adds on top of journey that then adds on top of path goal. And and then from that, we build more and more complex models. And a lot of the information that, I mean, the book deals with really just two types of information, which is sensory, well, sensory motor and social. But when, right. we, when we look at hierarchies of information, we actually go, we have sensory motor, we have environmental, we have social, and we have cultural. The book doesn't touch the cultural stuff at all, mm-hmm. which, which is ironic in some ways, because that's ultimately, arch- almost all of architectural theory in the, in the last 40 or 50 years is cultural. It's based
0: on cultural information.
1: Absolutely. This is a theory book that abandons that and actually looks at
0: theory at a sensory motor level. Right. And and maybe we can go into some specific examples, you know, the three that came to my head as soon as you talked about sensory motor, you know, implied action, implied motion, implied stability, kind of all three of those on their own imply movement and something, whereas we're talking, you know, for the most part, we're talking about buildings. Most buildings don't technically move, you know, either they are quote unquote stable from a structural yeah. standpoint. Whereas
1: I had to deed that.
0: I'm sorry. What was that? I said, don't tell Zaha to deed. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, um, I mean, great loss for us. But at the same time, her entire premise was to produce buildings that implied motion. And Absolutely. Get
0: it through formal through formal relationships. Absolutely, and I, I know the the hopefully the every viewer goes and picks up the book because they are as they listen to us. They're not seeing the diagrams, which in my opinion do a fantastic job of explaining maybe some of the more nebulous ones. And so. And that kind of, you you, you had a, f- and I know it's because of your background, you've mentioned some literary, you know, some of these terms have both the literary and a literal architecture one. And the first one that comes there is, I think, the idea that most people are familiar with, and that's personification. People mm. are really good putting human faces on objects they see or, you know, just the idea. Whereas, while you do talk about that, you actually go into kind of the four different aspects of personification and how they can interact with our architecture i was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little more
1: yeah well and you know and you you mentioned this a little bit earlier about building a common language and that was actually one of the intentions that i had um i get really i get really tired of hearing um hearing things either called the wrong thing right that yes. we call one thing something else a lot of people a lot of people talk about anthropomorphism um, yes. and they then they apply some sort of personality to something, and that's not anthropomorphism. That has to do anthropomorphism has to do with a shape association. So it's a formal relationship. It's an aspect of personification, but personification itself is the projection of, of human characteristics into non-human things. And it's a really, really fundamental way that we understand everything. Right? We 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 push. It doesn't matter if it's another organism whether it's whether it's inert or whether it's an idea we give things personalities and emotions and bodies and the ability to do things that we can do right and so when we talk about buildings that reach out and grasp something that's a well that's a metaphor to start with in fact almost everything in the book and this is the other probably the other dirty secret in the, the next book i'm working on um is that everything in the book is actually about metaphors but it's they're correlational metaphors, most of them. Um, there is a small section at the back that then breaks down metaphor into the three types of metaphor we have. Mm-hmm. But anything, anytime you start projecting knowledge into something which isn't in, inherent to that thing, that's a metaphorical transfer. And for us, it's completely natural. It's actually the only way we understand anything is through ourselves because that's the only thing we know.
0: Absolutely. And, again, a, a very good segue into the quote unquote next kind of grouping, the socio spatial ideas. I think anyone, particularly, and again, I, I think I think of my students when I was reading this part, a lot of these ideas in that socio group, I think a lot of students in a studio, they're either hearing it, they're trying to use it themselves. And so when you mention you know, the idea of that everything we explain is usually in metaphors, the same thing, I think anyone who's kind of being introduced to the architectural field, some of these at first is a little intimidating. Until you kind of break it down to something that, as you've mentioned, is unrelated, but quite a bit simpler, only because it's something they experience on a day-to-day basis. You know, they, Yeah, no, that's... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, my apologies. Um, I was just going to agree with you. And so, <laughs>
0: please continue. Oh, you know, and that's... Uh, quite a few of them are, but, you know, the first one is Vista. I think the idea of Vista could kind of sound complicated. It's even a kind of a complicated word, but the reality is every person is experiencing that every day. So when you start explaining that in something they do daily, it becomes much easier to understand.
1: Yeah. And I mean, and like 280 words, right? To explain the entire depth <laughs> and breadth of what a Vista is and how do we and most of what I've been trying to do, you know, in the book is uh is operationalize these things, make them very, very straightforward, um, introduce a set of very basic tactics that then then can be applied and reused and thought about but at no way and i say this early in the book too this is not deterministic um, we don't when we deal with human environments we don't deal with deterministic outcomes we deal with probabilities and so you know we can do things that when when we start looking at say we just talked about you know connecting procession to journey which is connected to path goal but when we then introduce vista into procession connected to journey we introduce a focal point And that's connected to access, and that's connected to alignment, and that's connected to importance. And so all of these things are working at the same time in these environments. For us as professional designers, we should be able to analyze, unpack, and explain each of those layers and how they operate. Because we're professionals. That's what we should be doing. Um, So we should be also educating students who understand these things that have a language when they speak to other professional designers can say, yes, I, I set up, you know, I set up the circulation to operate in this way with, with presence in here and this, this, this the thing that allows this complexity to occur in this area. Now all of a sudden we actually have a language where we can start to communicate and we can start to build on and and we can actually hopefully help to develop again, another generation of very, very strong designers with ultimately and obviously, the ultimate goal for all of us who are in architectural design is to produce very, very rich, very strong human environments.
0: Absolutely. And you actually, you kind of mentioned the idea that trying to envision a future state that doesn't exist. You know, when we talk about another group, kind of the other group we haven't talked about of, of these definitions of process actions, you know, it's, I think a lot of us in the architectural field might take for granted this skill of thinking about a future state that doesn't exist and then adapting to it. You know, whenever you talk to someone outside the architecture field, they usually are just very blown away by the idea of designing and reacting to a building that doesn't exist anywhere but paper. Yes. <laughs> and like, as I said, you know when reading that as an architect, I might I may have taken that for granted at first and then until you talk to those kind of outside of the field. And so this, this other, so this, this final, we'll call it the final group, you know, the process actions, you know, could you kind of explain to us how that's, you know, why, why that is grouped differently than the sociospatial ideas, even though it seems more in the quote unquote, final design realm?
1: Yeah. And, you know, what was really interesting is when the book started, um, the process actions was probably two thirds or even three quarters of the book was all about process actions. Is, is that right? <laughs> Yeah, and and what was really interesting was that um, I was trying out a lot of this stuff. I had a whole list of these things, and I was I was starting to I was starting to document and write through some of these things, and I was trying them out with um, with students with a foundation class. And every time I introduced something, the questions were like, they kept asking questions that made me go, "Oh, I have to back up. I well, I can't explain this until I explain that, and then right. be like, well, then I can't explain this until I explain that. Oh, and then I need this before that." And it turns out that then I went from three quarters of process action to the point where I almost cut them from the book because yeah. I had, right because I, I realized that I had all this other stuff that had to go in first, which was the situated notions and the social spatial stuff mm-hmm. that had to do with, you know, how we occupied space and how we understood things, more semantics. the The last section is is really not about how we understand the environment, so it's not about say specialized semantics it's it's about uh, decision making, which is really about methodology. So these are the core these are the core tools, these are the core tactics we use to build into larger, larger methods. Um, and there are a lot of the a lot of the fundamental process. So abstraction is probably I would say the the fundamental design action, the ability to take an object and to understand that object not by what it is, but break it into break it into events and break it into um, its purposes and how it operates and what it, what it does, and then understand a new way or a way of then transferring that into a new design proposal. And we do that over and over and over again, but as professional designers and educated, you learn it in, you learn it through your studios and through your education and through your practice. You don't ever think about doing it. And when Absolutely. you get a new student coming in, they don't know anything about this stuff. Right. And, right. and we don't actually teach it because we just, we take it for granted. And and that's why I say the book is really weird because it's it's I find it really like it's um it's a dictionary and it's a dictionary of things that we all know but nobody talks about.
0: That's a that's a great way to explain it. You know, we have because of your educational background and my educational background, we have been kind of talking a lot in terms of students. But you know, I have to kind of make it clear to anyone listening, even as a practicing architect, you know. Every meeting I have with clients, not only am I doing all, a lot of this, I have to explain a lot of this to them, and they don't have the advantage of an architectural background. So, you know, I've mentioned that this gives a common language for students, but I'd also like to show, you know, this is for practicing architects, designers, educators. I, I think there really is the value of a common, you know, a real common language between all aspects of architecture.
1: Yeah. Well, in the end, I hope, you know, it was, I hope it's useful in general. I mean, if it's something somebody can give to a client said, you know, read these three sections and this is what I'm trying to do. And they'll, you'll start to understand what I know. Ultimately, you know, it's to support the, it's to, to support the professional nature of what we do, um, to help us, to help us understand and be able to communicate more clearly to solidify the knowledge and the discipline that we take for granted, and to make our discipline ultimately as valuable as I know it is, and we all we all want that. But you know, at the same time, we we all scratch our heads and try to figure out why nobody understands what we do.
0: <laughs> I, I would agree. That's certainly something any practicing architect is dealing with on a daily basis. Kind of how the outside world isn't as knowledgeable or on board with what we are about as we would think, actually. Right. Right. Uh, so, uh, so I, as I said, there's so many concepts to cover. You know, sadly, I, I don't think we could. You know, one question I'd have, and you sort of hinted at another book, but you know, since the book's been released, you know, what else have you been kind of working on or been involved with? <laughs>
1: um, well, the one, uh, yeah, I mean, the one before this was uh, revealing architectural design, which deals with really it's an it's a more advanced book for people who want to reflect back on their own design processes. Um, and then I'm now starting to work on one on metaphor, and we're working on um, another one on like making architecture. But we're starting to look at um, other disciplines, so interior design, uh, urban design, industrial design, and starting to extend that dialogue of of some of these fundamentals. They're not going to be they're not going to be um, repeats of this one. They're actually going to extend the discourse, uh, and so rolling on those, and you know. Those will be the next two projects I work on. The metaphor one is really something I've been picking at for quite a while. And and mostly because I think it's really, it's such an incredibly powerful tool in such a fundamental way that people think. But it's another one of those things which is so misused and misunderstood (laughs) um, and ends up getting a really bad name for itself because the way that we abuse it. You know, we really just handle it at an image level, but it's so much deeper than that. And it's an incredible design tool when it's used well.
0: Uh, Very interesting. Hopefully we can talk again someday about one of them. I I definitely see see the need for all of it, but I can definitely see the advantage of kind of breaking through the different design principles. I don't think many people realize not just art, you know, not only are there other designers besides architecture, even the field of architecture itself is very big and encompassing. So. Well, I want to thank you again for being on the show. The book is Making Architecture Through Being Human, A Handbook of Design Ideas. Thank you again for speaking with me. And for those listening, thank you and have a great day.
1: Thank you, Brian.